Hello and welcome to what we're calling uh, Room 10A and 10B, uh, the Reading Room Live, a special event for the Lincoln Book Festival 2011. Uh, it's, it's fair to say that here on Siren 107.3 FM, we closed the Lincoln Book Festival with uh, with a superb spoken word event. Uh, we also had some live music as well, and for the first time in uh, really in our history, we're, we're including music on the podcast from uh, a fantastic local artist uh, here in Lincoln uh, called Viv Morell. Uh, she's allowed us to play uh, both her songs on the podcasts. They'll come in two halves uh, because we've got two hours worth of material for you, much more than normal. And uh, what you'll hear is the live recording from the uh, from the actual stage show recorded at the Bishop Greaves Theatre in Lincoln on the 15th of May 2011 so let's get started so it's time to meet our first performer who's been published in various writing magazines and journals she reads poetry for page and performance and she's an active member of a local writing community Although she lives, works and writes in Leicestershire, you can put your tar and feathers away because she's Lincolnian by birthright. So please give a warm welcome to Jane Stanton. Good evening, everyone. I'm delighted to be bringing my poetry home to my native city this evening. A documentary series about famous diaries intrigued me. Even here, writers feel free to blur the boundaries between fact and fiction. So I'll start with a haiku as way of a prologue. Diary. Hiding all between crisp white vellum sheets. Take me as you will. Dear diary. I'm sick of being a side wheel, a cog wheel, a tread wheel. I'm ready to cart wheel, free wheel without a spare wheel. I'm stepping out of my down at heel flat heels. I'll take to my heels, ditch the excess baggage, social, parochial, filial, familial, marital, parental, accidental, all things sentimental. I'll shelve them. Somewhere compartmental. Try being truly experimental. Maybe achieve something monumental. I'm sick of feeling comfortable, of acting the little missensible, predictable, adaptable, 100% unflappable, or merely disposable. I long to be adorable, delectable, improbable, unstoppable, and much, much less dependable. I've had my fill of winter times, down times, bad times, war times, downright not on your lifetimes. Now they're pastimes. This year I'll work flexi time, permit myself some fun time, give myself a break time, a blissful peace and quiet time, a doorstep slice of dream time. It's high time I tossed my cares away and took that long overdue break away. I'm making a super swift getaway. I'll be a runaway stowaway. A desert island castaway. Far, far away. Maybe not straight away, but sometime soon anyway. People and relationships inspire much of my work. Family tree. Leaf outbreaks chafe the crown. Her branches heavy with responsibility. Fruit 
hot for leaving, keen to seed before their lustres lost to rot. She slips the grafting collar, reverts to to root stock. Books evoke strong images. I wrote this after reading Camilla Shamsi's novel, Burnt Shadows. Black orchids. A lover's parting gift, the silk kimono. Black orchids on yellow wrap her skin in the bedroom turned atomic dark room. Hiroshima's flash photography tattoos orchids, shadow artistry on angel skin. Poetry and music often compete for my time. I play the violin, but I love the resonance of its larger string family relation. Cello squats, cradled by thighs, pear-hipped, knee-gripped, tipped back, neck to neck, as fingers linger over tattooed shoulders framing maple ribs. Bow strokes energising tensile wired nerves. Belly swells in sound birth. One stiletto grips the floor. After a poetry workshop on the theme of holes, I embarked upon a late-night Google search which gave rise to this poem. If holes cannot exist without a host, that makes them parasites. If holes consist of nothing, then... They're immaterial, lack substance, and if holes are mere disturbances, like creases in a shirt, then they can be easily smoothed away. If holes once filled aren't holes, then why, the more I pack into dark days, still darker nights, the deeper this hole gets. My next poem was one of ten wee poems which appeared in Leicester's Public Buildings as part of Everybody's Reading Week last October. And I prefer not to think of this poem as having the dubious accolade of uh, appearing on the back of uh, the doors in the ladies' toilets. Home edition for word. Edit last night's blazing row. Delete the accusations flung. Cut the spat profanities, paste in the file named regrets, undo the wakeful night spent hugging the mattress edge, insert break, format change case, I'm sorry, let's talk, save changes, close, open new blank document. Next, a poem about a butterfly, perhaps. Butterfly in glass case. When he netted her, pinned flat behind plate glass, his possession, framed and labelled rare breed, permanent exhibit, exquisitely untouchable, his much-adored collectible, was it to please his eye? deny her flight, or to protect her from the type who pull wings from butterflies. And I'll leave you with a poem about leaving. The cab door closes, clapboard-like. She takes her seat in time to watch a private showing in the rear-view mirror. He stands mid-road, 
shot in rapid pullback, tarmac backlit. No backstory, just this cameo to mark his letting go as she leaves for her next casting. Thank you. Our thanks to, uh, to Jane for starting off our live event here at the Lincoln Book Festival 2011. Now, a popular online encyclopedia describes an author as the person who originates or gives existence to anything. Back on our Room 6 edition of the Reading Room, we spoke to an author that has originated in her heroine, Val Saunders, a strong, funny and identifiable lead female character and given existence to a fantasy tale that's a complete page-turner. Although her books are without doubt a huge word-of-mouth success, her tireless interaction with her fans through social networking, book signings, and visiting over 3,000 school pupils, it provides a real-life strong, funny, and identifiable female role model to young people here in the real world. Here to read from her first book of the 13th series, please welcome the fabulous Georgia Twynham. Good evening. Um, I've never done anything like this before, so if you actually see any shaking, it really is me. Um, And normally I speak to children who are aged about eight, so I'm sure I don't have to tell you not to play with Velcro while I'm speaking, okay? Um, Chapter one, the tattoo. A young woman stood alone looking up at the night sky, a cool breeze effortlessly caressing her slim frame as darkness closed around her. At long last, it would be her turn to be part of something that had been her destiny since birth. She moved on, passing the pond. She caught a reflection in the water and smiled. The time had arrived. The moon had reached the top of the trees, and on this particular evening, the shadows of the dense woods, mixed with the bruised sky, made the adventure that lay ahead seem all the more exciting. As she left the village behind and made her way into the woodland, her body filled with anticipation and she began to run. Knowing instinctively where to go, she weaved like a needle in and out of the undergrowth, dodging the trees as if they were merely smoke trails rising in front of her. She was moving swiftly when an unfamiliar sound suddenly stopped her dead in her tracks. A strange crackling in the air made every hair on the back of her neck stand on end. Something was very wrong. She spun around, trying to find where it was coming from, but soon realised it was everywhere. Then as suddenly as it had started, it stopped. She cautiously started to move forward again when the silence was shattered once more by another wave of sound. In the confusion, her foot caught under a loose tree root, causing her to fall awkwardly into a pile of leaves. Before she had time to stand up, she heard violent screams coming from the distance. These weren't joyful cries, the the cries of pleasure and happiness that she'd been expecting. These turned her blood cold and left her paralysed where she lay on the wet forest floor, her heart pounding. After a few seconds, she gathered enough courage to slowly lift herself up and move forward again. She was suddenly very frightened, aware of the risks she had taken just by being there. She darted to an old oak tree, hiding for a moment in the shelter of its huge trunk. Cautiously, she edged around it. Everything was quiet, so she leant the top half of her body out to see if it was safe. In that split second, a ball of light came towards her, travelling at amazing speed and growing as it came, until it seemed to be the size of a mountain. When it hit her, its power engulfed her whole body and she was instantly lifted off the ground. She screamed helplessly as it raised her into the treetops. Her ears filled with a piercing noise like nothing she'd ever heard before. 
Her whole body felt like it was burning up, yet still she kept rising and rising until she was high above the trees. Then the light and noise stopped. Her upward flight came to a violent halt and she began to fall. As she tumbled through the the trees, the thick branches scratched aggressively at her clothes and face. The ground came towards her at terrifying speed. The scream that had struggled her was silenced when she hit the ground with tremendous force. Her body filled with pain, the taste of warm blood filled her mouth, and she slipped into unconsciousness. Thank you. Our thanks to uh, Georgia Twynham. For more information, you can log on to the13th.co.uk and I'd recommend a visit to her Facebook page as well. For Fiona Linde, dealing with real stuff happens on many levels. Writing is her way of letting go and raising awareness of what she holds precious. Fiona first appeared on our programme back on Room 4 when she read from her young adult novel, Get Over It. I also had the most rewarding experience in starting at Siren FM by visiting the school where Fiona works to record a story written by the children from the Pierpont Gamston Primary School Writers Club. And we played that on our Christmas special. Recently... She won the Unique Writing Publications Short Story Competition with the story that she'll be reading tonight. So, reading love, please welcome Fiona Linde. Good evening. This is lovely to see some adults listening to a story. Um, This is written for adults, you'll be pleased to know. Way back, I thought it simply must have been my fault. That was my first dreadful conclusion on hearing the agonising news. Our little family had been happy until the onset of the bad old days. Only after those few foul words spewed out of a consultant's mouth, things changed forever. We were a young couple who thought we could have it all. We were very naive. Why? flashed through my head sharply. Because I'd not rested or eaten well enough? Was it the tiny glass of red wine I'd had before I knew for sure? We'd breezed into the outpatient's clinic without a care in the world, but during the routine consultant, my hubby went quiet. We just stared at each other in total disbelief. Eventually, I fell into his arms, and he gave me this hug, and we'll be okay, whilst holding back huge sobs, I just leant on him. For Maggie, nestled between us, there simply had to be this facade of coping. On coming back into our cubicle, acknowledging our beautiful little girl, the doc smiled and said, Take a while to get over it, Mr. and Mrs. Clegg. Say six months, and then try again. At least you know you can do it. But then he labelled our poor dead baby, something horrible, and booked me in to stop the night to vacuum it away. Like I was supposed to imagine, nothing really happened, and be treated the same as mums who didn't want their babies in for terminations. No wonder it did my head in. It was cruel being on the same ward with mums having abortions who had a choice. But my dad came to be by my bedside, and it helped a bit. He just cried with me. He at least admitted it was sad, that something wrong had happened, and it was okay to be disappointed. Then the surgeon discarded our unborn child. 
and our family were meant to walk away. Instead, we were shattered. Still, our precious toddler skipped happily unaware, thank God. Back home, what sank in was that previously I'd felt in control. However, that delusion was fast disappearing. By forgetting our innocent baby, who they'd omitted to tell us the sex of, we were expected to pull ourselves together. Weeks passed, still the niggling. I was forever googling miscarriages and spare moments when Maggie napped. I hid this from Jack, pretending. But privately, I was battling with making sense of my loss. Constantly seeking answers why our tiny, unformed baby had stopped growing. I resolved that there were no firm answers. Even after a lot of tea and sympathy from good friends, accept and try not to blame anyone went through my head. Unfortunately, at the same time, was it was my fault, or did God do this, stabbed through my heart. This argument was replayed at night, making me exhausted. Meanwhile, my lovely Jack and Maddie showered me with affection. For now, the baby clothes would have to go away. More good out-of-sight, out-of-mind stuff. An odd metallic taste in my mouth kept me from eating much. Apart from the quick fixes, such as galaxy bars, Jack treated me to loads of those, knowing they hit the spot. Mostly, I stayed in, doing a manic spring clean despite everything. At the weekends, Jack came with me to do the big shop. He picked up on stuff, him hurting too. Long silences were every day, but Maggie distracted. She was the sole reason for carrying on. The outside world asked difficult questions like, how's the pregnancy going? But still, she needed company, despite my sadness. But by us going across the road for tea, things blew up. That's when I heard the dreadful... Have you found that baby yet? A surprising question from our little rainbow friend, leaving me numb. Realising what her little treasure had said made Joanna crimson. Sarah, what a silly question. Whatever did you get that idea from? Her mother tried to soothe things over with Sarah at that very literal age of six and a half. Despite obvious cuteness, she'd relit the touch paper, shooting another sudden flood of jittery adrenaline around my bloodstream. I interrupted, lying, No, really, it's all right, making nothing of it, apart from pacing their dining room floor. Then, honestly, it's all right, Sarah. I'm afraid my baby isn't actually coming back. More awful silence. Not their fault. Maddie was busy licking the icing off her bun before offering me the sticky remains. A quick getaway was my priority. These things happen all the time, was Joanna's parting blow. By then, I was having trouble holding it together. My heart was thumping and I went hot. When my sweetheart turned around with another chocolatey treat to wipe her hands, she giggled, Maddie, not a baby, me a big girl now. Bless her, she'd heard the word baby and just assumed we meant her. 
reaching for the wipes, I made up some urgent need to retreat. I had to get out of there. Rudely, we pulled on our coats and pushed through their back door, me muttering, Oh, thanks, you must come to us next time. Maddie was rubbing her eyes and wanted carrying. It'd been nearly six o'clock now as we collapsed through the back door. Jack was home. We passed his muddy boots in the porch, him found at the table, enjoying five minutes reading the paper. My face must have said it all, though, because Maddie took, he took me, Maddie off me and asked, whatever's the matter? To which floods of tears fell down my face, me running upstairs. Plopping on our bed, I muffled my screams into the pillow. Downstairs was normal. As he sorted out our daughter over the echoes of a musical toy, it was a good job one of us could. I ought to have been there getting his tea on. Instead, my pain spluttered down blistering cheeks. When he came in to find me, all poor Jack got was, it's just not fair, and what happens if I can't have another anymore? As if he knew, I felt vile, irrational. Stop it, will you? He kissed me, saying, we'll be okay. From my bedside table drawer, I pulled out the only thing left of my lost baby. It was the ripped ultrasound picture I'd been secretly peeking at as my husband began to snore each night. Amongst the swirls was this lovely outline of a head and a clear backbone. I showed him eight weeks that was. He smiled. The heart was going ten to the dozen. Normal development, they said. Jack's tear escaped onto the paper before he could stop it. I gasped at the idea of the, pa- the baby's final image being gone. He blotted it, saying, You must stop torturing yourself, love. The dog says we'll be fine to try again soon. I know. Well, then his arms softly wrapped around me. Sighing, Jack lifted himself off our bed and went when the phone rang. It was my sister, Elise, who got me the help on hearing this latest. She arranged for us to have a visit from our pastor. Paul had done Maddie's dedication service. We should have done this before. Paul wasn't surprised at my outburst. I was Glad Jack listened while he spoke sensitively about our loss. Paul was talking about getting closure. He even asked, do you know why there was no funeral? We glanced at each other, shrugging our shoulders. And then Jack told him, it all came out. You're having a laugh, aren't you? We don't even know the sex of our baby, never mind a funeral. We weren't told anything. It was just whipped away. We were in shock. And they just got on with it, without letting us on the bigger picture. I shuddered as Jack continued. They just told us it was down to the fetus being so few weeks old, treating us like our baby wasn't yet a person. Letting go melted my husband. Paul put his arm, patted his arm as I moved in to give him a hug. Rather than being upset, I found myself relieved. He might understand. Paul explained that he'd come across parents in similar situations. What might help you to is to forgive and stop holding on to false guilt. 
and you could try to forgive the doctors and God if you blame him too. I saw Jack's face flush, realising he was struggling with some of this. Paul was sure we took on board that it was no one's fault. He then got out his Bible. Listen, let's find the answers in here. And we did. And it worked. We let go of our guilt and dashed hopes by praying for reassurance that our tiny, unformed baby was being looked after in a better place. And he said that we must keep going and that our marriage will be blessed again. Reading, you will have courage because you will have hope. You will take your time and rest in safety. Jack got it. God knows exactly what we've gone through. He's seen his son die too. What love. Thank you. You can find more details about Fiona, her books and information should you be affected by the subject of her story uh, by visiting fiona.linde.yolasite.com and links for all tonight's performers are on our webpage. Now it's time for some live music from a singer-songwriter who's been described as beautiful melodies playing host to authentically honest lyrics. Please give a warm welcome to Viv Morell. Dig it, my. 
Viv Morrell will be back in the second half of this evening's programme. For more information and to download some free tracks, you can visit vivmorell.com. Now, it's time for some more poetry. Uh, I think it's late last year, but Paul thinks it's earlier this year. It was my privilege to hook up with an old school friend at Siren FM Studios and record some of his poems for our programme. As you'll hear later on, I didn't really start to read or listen to poetry until we started the reading room. Now, hearing a poet of my age with a similar outlook on life has really helped me connect with the art form. We recorded lots of his poems in that session, and they'll become a regular feature on the reading room. So it gives me a great pleasure to introduce, for the first of two sets this evening, Paula Tang. Thank you. A couple of poems for you, um, short but sweet, but I hope you like them. first one's called Boxes. Boxes... Poxes, oh hell, no key to the loxes. No one to help you pull up your socks. Boxes, round, square, triangle, any which way they please to wrangle. If it suits you, let it dangle. Show everybody your awkward spangle, or else out with the new and feel the old fangle. Crimp, cramp, live wire damp. Sit on your hands, complicit the cramp. Stuck in a hard place and hit by falling rockses. So boxes, boxes, turn back the clockses and be prepared to take more noxes from toxic boxes. Second one's called hard. Boot, head, van. Push, turn, ran. Hit, hard, Nuts, fall, sleep, flag, light, blade, bleed, drip, drop, life. Thank you. Now it's time to introduce you to a writer from Minneapolis. America, whose first book, Music for Landing Planes By, was published by Milkwood Editions in 2007, and a second is forthcoming. 
She'll also coordinates the Nottingham Poetry Series and edits a new magazine of writing called 1110, which will be available here at the interval. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Erin Lawson. Thank you for being here, and thank you, Paul, for having me. And will be. The only thing there is here is the word. Go a long road, through tunnel, under bridge, musket, lily, the whole world reduces. I was born before zeros and ones defined the shape of rivers, before crossing an ocean equaled a bomb in midair. Somewhere students kept hostages, somewhere a landslide covered everything in mud, and these were real. The word wants to touch. If you need healing, just go to the doctor. I mean that familiar spine and open it. A lion waits, a field of bobolinks, the doorways and sprinkled streets and blackbirds. But this isn't information. They take up yes and no and do not rest on a single answer. My students want everything, both. They urge into the classroom saying what if to their own minds. One day they all sleep. I go among them to open a dissection. Inside they carry polished stones, the roots where wings join back, the wind blowing water white and black. I want to climb into their wolf bodies and live there while they relearn the world, deleting binary. If they can, I hope everyone in the world will say yes, which is the trumpet flower blooming over a wall, which is tinged by lack but rejects that lack, instead going everywhere, bright red, insistent. Maybe there is no hope in some darkness, nothing any word can approach. Well, still, sing out into that darkness, sound the shapes of rocks and shorelines. If your words don't come back, keep singing. Lucky life is like this. Whenever I can, I will go out into the world singing. forgetting in multiple. There are repairs to be made in the smell of the underground hallway, a bird, hologram, a struck match. So much flickers here. In the chase, lead letters sit heavy, and I wait. Something tastes like licorice, an old man sitting on an old wall near the sea, and sewage waiting. Saturation comes early in the morning. One day it will be July again, and I will wake up in Venice, where nothing apparates correctly. Print shop waiting, my body flickering between the saints, the razor scraper flying over sheets, lumberyards, the dream of salt water. All subterranean, all hushing, aluminum, shadows of blue boats, the year rushing, rushing forward to meet me over and over. I'm going to read one more from this and then a few from my new collections. This is called In the Wide World. All the parallel birches. The night where Orion hangs like a burn, flaunting his six gems, happy to consider everyone else from such a distance. The students cramped in their desks, their hands cramping around pencils, lampshades, eyeglasses, and library cards. Hammer dulcimer and guitar, the viola, bass, cello, harp, piano, harpsichord, and all manner of woodwind. The babies waking up their sleepy parents, the scuff of slippers down a hall. 
a calder mobile, circles and ellipses and a bone in space. Seven fish swim the air above one child's head. Eyes, deep holes, lakes and ponds, people who drown and people who do not drown, lovers, unborn children. Roads that run longer than they run, interminable changes in direction and other things that are gone. The owl's pellet made of bone and hair, the crow's beak full of deer, tendon waving in the dry wind. Sharp stones and round stones, cobbles, paving stones, bricks, sand and glass, tar, hot and pliable, your 26 teeth, urine and the smell of urine. A man's cologne as he passes, arms in the air, the fabric his shirt is made from, his loneliness, lights in the distance. And also street lights, reading lamps, candles and bassoons, Intensity and luminosity, ohms, kilowatts, candle powers and calories, and stoplights and brake lights, all manner of red and glowing things, and rubies and garnets and drops of blood. Also reflections on silverware, also lovers. Things that are hard to forget all at once, things that are hard to forget piece by piece, all the bridges, all kinds of musty and fetid smells, wet dog, stale air, ammonia, a mother slapping her baby waking up forgetful of a death. Eyebrows like moths in flight, bitter wine, orchids, and all sorts of softness, angora, the inside of a woman, a homeless man's teeth. Deep in the world are the windows, the insides of houses, rib cages, tempestuous, unnecessary spleen, the open heart. Things that close, doors, scissors, islands and countries, the line outside an empty store, every ending. Every promise, 18 wheels and 10 tons of iron, freeway spinning behind, everything forgotten, the things you lost as a child. Gray Century. On the first morning of the gray century, spiders have put webs in the windows. By the time you wake up, the morning procedures are going on. A tiny forest of cyclamens in the backyard you can't say, did I sleep for a hundred years? You know that's ludicrous. The milkman looks at you funny. The century wants you to enjoy the little plants that flower in the shape of ghosts. It hates to remind you that everyone you used to love is dead. Zero hour. The engineers line up and the machines line up. The high schools line up outside in the town where students line up also. Along the edge of the city is a line of pink light. You can look at the map all you want. The city isn't there and the beginning of day isn't there. The factories aren't there and the students aren't there. Make room for this country that doesn't show up on maps. Here, we've picked all the numbers, the transparency of numbers, a perfect fuel. Everything that isn't there we call a zero. Engineer zero, machine zero, high school zero, student zero, city zero, light zero, day zero, country zero, map zero, number zero. We're waiting. We're not sure why you're here, you with your single spine, a total assertion of one. Standing woman carrying wolf. She was preaching no sermon except the one that goes, love thyself, sinner, and love them animals, the ones running past you in the night when you can hardly breathe, their fur gets so close, and all you want to do is pass out so you don't remember how good they smell and if you want to be one. 
Open letter to Dmitry Savchenko. Who are you now, Dmitry Savchenko, at your wedding, drinking straight from the bottle of champagne, a tacky bouquet of fake pink rayon roses in your right hand, now ringed? In a cowboy hat in the supermarket out of human scale, in a photograph several years out of date, your mouth hidden by a black ribbon, camouflaging your face with a picture of Gomez Adams? Dimitri, listen. The exorbitant vowels of our names want us to be together. Every night lately, I've woken up sweating, the whole bed drenched, thinking of you, Dmitry Savchenko, you with the straight blonde hair falling over a map of the Ukraine you keep on your forehead, you with your hand raised to fend off a blow. When did you marry, Dmitry? When was the last time you took a train across the wheat fields? Last night, the shine from your shirt kept me up until 3 a.m. your time. I could see you dancing that awkward, suggestive dance no one's comfortable with, your tie flapping those inappropriate sunglasses. Sometimes, rarely, you're a beautiful Dmitry Savchenko, and then I'm sure I don't know you. You, with your back to the Black Sea, drinking whiskey this time, but still straight from the bottle, your black hair blown back against the pier. It's true, I'm still in love with how the light hits your crooked nose. But mostly, I love the black earth, your left hand on the forelock of a tarpon. Centuries are nothing to you, Dimitri. Forests and hills are nothing, the sea. You do not disappear completely. Your philosophers are boxers. You photographed the atom. I wonder if you'll play the piano again when the gangrene heals, and whether every so often you look at the white walls of your office, see the water break just over our heads. And I'm going to finish with a poem about England, since that's where I am now, and you are too, coincidentally. England or the continent I had in mind when I came here. It's for my friend Caroline. Every bird is a sister of mine. Can you believe I never saw horses running before I came to this island, and nothing but their own good sense keeps them from falling into the ocean? At the edge of your country, along train tracks that run from Devon to Cornwall, someone set up a hall, and it's been going longer than we can remember, or our mothers remember, or their mothers. Where else could a woman turn into flowering rosebush? All so peripheral, the crooked edges maps show, the limit is sunset here, where I can never travel all night and the next day. I brought you what I bound you, a piece of cloth in tatting thread and colors I found here, loose strife, sorrel, the gelder rose, wood, anemone, a tapestry barring girlhood to one field, long stripe of a neighbor, neighbor's plow turning land just over the woven branches, earth to earth. The sandwich cart rattles by, you stack cups on a tray. Meanwhile, unobtrusively, the air diffuses particles, the sky is pinked. This earth, this shining in the sea. Thank you very much. Erin Lawson, and if you liked what you heard there, you can find Erin's superb website by following the links from the Reading Room website, where you'll also find the podcasts of all our previous shows. And talking of which, you'll find our next guest on our last podcast. And it's time to meet a remarkable young man with a passion and enthusiasm that I no longer recognize. 
He's an author, a publisher, and a broadcaster, currently studying at Lincoln University, promoting his second novel, Walking on Cinders, and taking part in his second event here at the Lincoln Book Festival. Please welcome Ben Atkinson. Uh, hello, I'm Ben Atkinson, and I guess what makes me interesting is that I'm 19 years old, um, I'm promoting my second novel on social media, and I talk too fast, so if that's the case, then uh, I apologise. Um, I'm studying media production at the University of Lincoln, and currently I'm working on organising the rest of the dates for my summer book tour, promoting Walking on Cinders, and also uh, releasing an e-book version of it very soon as well. The story itself is based in the future, and it follows three soldiers from the United Regiment as they fight in the final battle of a world war. And the extract I'm going to read now comes from London. It's set in London, and it follows the soldiers' general as he realises that his story and his work is about to unravel before his eyes. Reaching forwards to pull his penknife from the centre of a pot which contained a variety of coloured pens, he made light work of opening all three letters and opted to read the official document first. Dear Sir, it began, in the usual formal tone, I write to confirm that your most recent payment has not been completed. As of the date, Colonel Smith scratched his head. This had never happened before. All of his payments went through on time. That was the way his office ran on a day-to-day -day basis. Surely it could not be that important. Later he would ring the bank himself. Next he reached for the first of the airmail letters and frantically scrawled a note. He recognised the handwriting almost immediately, but the newspaper clipping, that was a surprise. Read the attached, the note said, and I think you will find that all our efforts have been thwarted. The road from this point onwards is very slippery. And it was signed with a simple initial, the letter B. Colonel Smith tossed the note aside quickly, and he began to read the newspaper article with a far greater interest. What could he be talking about? The plan was certain to succeed. It was almost guaranteed. But as he read the headline and looked at the photograph, his face fell. Domestic disturbance in French village. Farmer arrested. There was a picture of an elderly man, thinning hair, handcuffed and standing beneath a broken window. While in the background, he could just make out three dark figures running in opposite directions. It was an amateur shot from the scene, taken by an onlooker, and two of the three figures were unrecognisable. But the third, who was carrying a fourth in his arms, was unmistakable. Ewan Roberts, the colonel breathed, still staring at the photograph before him. So they did survive. Colonel Smith was shocked, to say the least. For years he had been in this job and nothing had ever gone wrong. His life of luxury had thus far been secure, and yet now there was a single seed of doubt fixed between the pages of his life. Thinking quickly now, his eyes darting around the room, he reached for the second French envelope and paced over to the window. There he looked down over the streets of Soho and marvelled at the plight of the average Londoner, more careful in these dangerous years of war. For a moment, he wondered what it would be like to swap places for just a day. To be normal for once, with no high military position and the expectation that was inevitably placed upon you. The colonel sighed deeply, his head in his hands. The tired lines beneath his eyes suddenly more pronounced and was about to open the second letter when there was a hurried knock at the door. Wondering what all the commotion could be about at a time when he could really do without it, he flung the letter down on his desk in a fit of temper, sending the contents spewing halfway across the shiny surface. And he paced towards the door, pulling it wide open. Quickly, a minor official darted into the room, shuffling from side to side expectantly. 
What is it now, William? David Smith questioned with disinterest. The young official looked pale as a sheet. Well, sir, he began, trying not to catch the colonel's eye. I've just received a message from France. Fighting has begun in earnest against the rebel reformed troops stationed across the chain de Pew. Tomorrow there begins a full-scale offensive across the world, aimed at winning the war. The reformed troops are weakening, sir, but our men are as strong as ever. Colonel Smith was angry. There was a look of thunder about him. Streaks of lightning behind the eyes, and his response broke off the official, mid-sentence. What? he boomed, staring the man directly in the face. For a few moments he stood there, literally quaking with anger, and then suddenly his resolve changed, and he weakened. He wiped his brow with the back of his hand, tufts of grey hair pushed back against his forehead, and this time he spoke far more meekly. Why wasn't I told about this? The small and timid official merely shook his head, not knowing what to say. There is one more thing, sir, he, he muttered. The colonel sighed, but did not stop. The president called a few minutes ago. He wanted to know why a most superior of our jets went down in the middle of French territory, close to several reformed strongholds, and why he was not informed about it. I told him, I told him, I don't know. Thank you, uh, Colonel Smith grimaced at last, swallowing hard. Now if you could leave me alone for a while. Yes, sir, of course, sir. The official smiled, backing out of the room, pulling the door shut behind him. He seemed glad the whole ordeal was over. Walking back to his desk, Colonel Smith dropped into the chair and dialed a few digits into the phone with his podgy fingers. The computerised voice on the other end of the line sounded tinny and far away, yet it confirmed his greatest fears. Payment ID, 256129. Payment month and transaction, July. Reformed Forces of China, General Chao Yang Li. Payment status, Transaction unsuccessful. The colonel slammed down the phone, and once again he buried his head in his hands. Things could not get any worse. His story would soon be over, and the war would soon be won. His side would be victorious, and yet he would not be happy. The reward he had been promised all those years ago would not come. He would be bankrupt, desolate, and without a purpose. He didn't bear thinking about. But perhaps there was still a way to save himself. Wiggling the wireless mouse... He clicked open a new email document and thought about the best way to explain things. Dear Mr. President, he began, but found himself unable to continue. Beside him on the desk, left unnoticed in the panic that had ensued, was a second letter. It had exactly the same postal address as the first and was lying next to the neatly opened envelope, its message clearly visible. The net is drawing in, David. It will not be long. You are in our sights. Treachery and deception is a court-martial offence, may I remind you and I do not think the President would approve. We have several of your soldiers here. They are safe, and well, after a disturbing aviation accident, for which we both know you are responsible. Until next time, do tail. Thank you. Uh, time now for another guest we featured previously on the reading room. Anyone that knows me will tell you it doesn't make much, take much to make me cry. Stick on DIY SOS with TV's Nick Knowles, and before long, I'm claiming there's something in my eye. Our next guest, Richard Barter, has the knack of moving me to tears as well. While recording his beautiful story, Time Has No Meaning, that we featured on our programme just before Remembrance Day last year, there was something in my eye during the recording of the story, during the editing of the story, and during the broadcast, by the time of the repeat, I just about managed to pull myself together. 
Richard is a writer with enormous talent. Not only does he set the scenes perfectly, but he allows you to feel for his characters immediately. A difficult discipline for most writers, but something essential for short story writers. Reading the step, please welcome Richard Barter. The step. Alone on her step, Annie couldn't explain, yet she sensed how deeply worn was this groove in their daily lives. As the final chimes from St Nicholas' clock tower faded, the first door would open. It was always Mrs Mullins. At one minute past eight, you'd hear the scrape of her tin bucket as she set it down on the pavement, then a subdued grunt as she knelt onto her pad. While her bristles scored the yellow soap, neighbouring doors ushered housewives onto the street. There would be nods, a comment on the weather, then the swishing, rasping sound of brushes scrubbing stone steps. By five minutes past eight, the line of kneeling women would be complete. Those who tarried would be greeted with raised eyebrows. Any step not receiving its daily ablution by the time Mrs Mullins was emptying her water into the gutter produced a hurried confab. If the tardy woman was in favour, a friend popped up the alley to knock on a back window. If tinged with scandal, however, there would be knowing nods and the exchange of gossip. It had always been eight o'clock, By then, the men had left for work. The older children were dawdling their way to school and the youngsters had been packed out into the backyard with warnings to keep out from under mother's feet. Then, a last half cup from the brown enamel pot before a woman's routine began. The ritual hadn't changed, even when war was declared. It would take more than the Kaiser to upset these women. But, Annie pondered, how different things had become. Enthusiasm sent young men rushing to the recruiting office. Then Lord Kitchener's challenging finger summoned others to their duty. George had been among the earliest. Young husbands without children have no excuse. It was Mrs Foster who altered the routine... Mrs Mullins checked her parlour clock when finding herself not the first kneeling to perform the morning rites. By the time the Mullins brush was at work, Flo Foster's suds were gurgling into the road. It was the lonely silence of a man-free house that sent out earlier first one woman, then another. With her own man away, Annie too felt the compulsion to convince herself and others that she was coping with her altered world. Even Mrs Sadler, whose loss had been the first in the street. At her son's death, shocked heads bobbed close, spreading unforeseen tidings. The war that was to be over by Christmas had begun its roll call. Yet Mrs. Sadler took pains to be early, dreading the sympathy of neighbours. Later, with bad news commonplace, front steps must still be scrubbed. Another duty came to mind. 
and he had to keep the runner beans watered. There was only space for a tight structure of poles in the backyard, yet each spring, George searched them out from their corner in the wash house. Every evening, they were his immediate concern. In his absence, they must be cared for. It would never do for him to come home and find them parched and wilting. As beans were George's assertion of independence, so the front step was Annie's badge of pride. A knock on the front door generally heralded something unwelcome. A neighbour would have cooed at the back door. Annie didn't fear the tallyman. They somehow managed to live within their means. The baker always rang his handbell, while an hour ago Annie had gone out with her jug to the white-smocked land girls who had replaced the enlisted milkman. As soon as Annie looked down at the diminutive uniform, she knew. Mechanically, she took the telegram. Too late, she thought she should have given him a penny, but he'd peddled away quickly, anxious to avoid an outflow of grief. Furrowed faces huddled. The sight of the telegraph boy was already sending rumours hurrying down the street. There was no need to open it. She would sit down by the range for that. Bad news could not be softened by the hasty ripping open of flimsy paper. Annie regretted she had not told him. It had happened on George's two-day leave. She had waited a month or two, not wanting to raise hopes of a baby until she was certain. She noticed a muddy outline on the step where the lad had reached up for the knocker. That would have to be washed off. No one must think she was slacking. What would George say if he knew? And she must remember to water his runner beans. It's, uh, it's, it's something in my eye. Um, now it's interval time here at the Bishop Greaves Theatre. So it's time to flush and refill, ready for a great second half in the Reading Room Live, the closing event of the Lincoln Book Festival here on Siren 107.3. This is 107.3 FM, Siren FM. And that's it, that's the end of the first half. Thank you for downloading this part. The second half of the programme can be heard by downloading Room 10B. See you there.